All right. As we mentioned earlier, it's uh, uh, because of the spring break, we're not having uh, children's church today. So uh, kids, uh, you are welcome to stay in here with us. And uh, kids, just know we've been walking through the book of Revelation. So uh, there's like some weird stuff in here. So you might want to just pay attention because it's It might be more exciting than you thought it was because there's a lot of crazy things that happen in this book. So, um, but uh, our hope is to walk through this thing together. So we've been in the book of Revelation, all uh, all things new, hope at the revelation of King Jesus. And we are uh, sort of barreling towards the end of this book here. We're in chapter 17. uh, And the plan is we are going to finish this book before uh, I leave for sabbatical. So um, we are are getting it done. uh, And uh, it's going to time out pretty well, Uh, and uh, we'll be taking just one chapter at a time the rest of the way through um, this book, and as we mentioned, uh, kind of throughout this process, as we've been walking through this book, it's sort of seven sections, and we're starting uh, the sixth of the seven sections here this morning, and then uh, we've got just that section and one more to go in the book, so... um, well, there, there's a, uh, I read a Washington Post article this week that looked at uh, some new CDC data that came out about youth in America. And this story in particular focused on high school girls. Uh, the CDC said, America's teen girls are engulfed in a growing wave of sadness, violence, and trauma. According to the study, uh, nearly one in three high school girls said they had considered suicide a 60% rise in the past decade. Nearly 14% had been forced to have sex, and about 6 in 10 girls were so persistently sad or hopeless, they stopped regular activities. 6 in 10. It's pretty alarming. Uh, And this article was talking about just sort of the alarming nature of, like, what's going on with uh, girls and teens in America? What's going on that's causing these things? Well, there's, there's a ton of ways that we could look at this, and there's really lots of ways that we could address this, uh, lots of, of ways that we need to address this, not just spiritually, but also physically and mentally through therapy, medicine, exercise, sleep, friends, all of these things. Uh, as we've been doing these monthly focuses, next month actually we'll be focusing on mental health and what does Jesus have to say about mental health and and how do we walk through these things together. Uh, So there's lots to that, and we don't want to just give a quick answer that says, like, hey, you just need Jesus. Uh, But it does expose for us something very real about our need for Jesus. It exposes something in us that this world can't satisfy when we are persistently sad and depressed around uh, any number of things that is happening. So many reasons for this in our current culture, uh, whether it's uh, the, the pandemic that made things so much harder for teens, uh, the reality of social media and the influence that it has on their lives, uh, the pressure that they face, violence that they face, all of these things are true. But it also highlights for us one of the most foundational realities that we all feel, which is the need to be loved. The need to be loved. The desire to be wanted, loved, cherished. And this need to be loved actually will drive us to so many places. It's the longing of our hearts. And I believe it's the longing that the book of Revelation actually seeks to expose. Seeks to expose and even to encourage us 
to experience this longing and then to point us in the place that it can actually be satisfied. Today, our text is going to set up a stark contrast. Uh, it's, it's sort of a, a stark contrast to something that we saw earlier in the book in chapter 12. In chapter 12, uh, the, the, this was the section that talked about the woman that was ready to give birth and the dragon was ready to devour the baby that she was going to birth. And we said when we looked at chapter 12 that this woman uh, sort of personified the church, the church that births Jesus, the Messiah, uh, and then is taken into the wilderness and protected while she is hated by the dragon. Uh, Just kind of opening this section. Uh, 12 starts this way. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Right? So this was the description of the woman that we said represented the church. But the dragon hated the woman. The dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Remember, this dragon hated the woman and was angry with the woman. Well, in Revelation 17, we're going to find another woman. This section is about a woman that represents Babylon. And remember, we've been saying kind of throughout this that Babylon is the representation of all of the the world's forces and governments opposed to Jesus. Any government that doesn't have Jesus physically on the throne is Babylon, right? So we live in Babylon. This is where we are. And John uses this metaphor of Babylon uh, to critique the Roman Empire that that the church is living in and to critique the idea of empire generally and to give Christians throughout the entire church age, uh, instructions on how do we live as disciples in a hostile world? How do we function in the midst of empire? And so just like the rest of this book, there's this setup between the contrast of the church and Babylon. What can we learn about this difference between what it means to be the church and what it is to be Babylon? And to, John's going to call us to be the church and not Babylon. Now, before we read this text, I need to say a few things about this woman in Revelation 17. Remember that uh, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and so the purpose of this type of writing is to state things in pretty uh, graphic, extreme ways, to use vivid imagery to show, warn, alert, and wake up the readers. So the language of Revelation is intentionally provocative. It's meant to get you to wake up. It's kind of the idea. So this woman, representing Babylon, is described as a great prostitute. Now remember, throughout the book of Revelation, sexual immorality is most fully seen as a metaphor about spiritual immorality, about idolatry. That's what its purpose is throughout the book of Revelation. Not to say that it has nothing to do with sexual immorality. Certainly the Bible has lots to say about sexual ethics. However, in the book of Revelation, it's far more uh, used as a metaphor for idolatry, for our spiritual immorality. Uh, so that's the primary way. And, and there certainly is a relationship here, particularly given that in the ancient world, as well as in the first century, uh, these two things came together in cult prostitution, which was a part of pagan worship. Uh, so this text is using this as a metaphor. However, 
So often in history, metaphors like this have been used to shame women, to deflect uh, away from the injustice of things like prostitution and sexual violence and exploitation. Now, this text is not contributing to that. This text is, is doing something else. That would be pushing the metaphor too far. We can't push metaphors too far in the book of Revelation. And we need to remember other parts of Scripture as we read any individual part of Scripture. we got to remember the whole story, right, which talks about those who are made in the image of God have dignity, value, and worth. You're made in the image of God. We spent a whole uh, few weeks walking through what does it mean that we are made in the image of God. And so all people uh, are made in the image of God. They have moral responsibility, both men and women. And there is grace and mercy for sexual sin. It's very clear throughout all of Scripture that there is grace and mercy extended to those who have committed sexual sin. So all of this has to be remembered when we read a text like this that, that might trigger some feelings. We just have to remember those realities that are true across Scripture so that when we read this text, we actually understand what this text is trying to do and not bring with it some of the things that we might feel about words in this text or, or anything like that. So all of that's important to remember. And actually, we'll see in this text... Uh, which is personifying Babylon as this woman, is not actually speaking about a, a woman. It's, it's a personification of a city, Babylon. And so let's not press that too hard. All right? Does that make sense? All right. Okay. So, Revelation 17, starting in verse 1. One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. Now remember... The book of Revelation has these seven parts, like I said, and each of these seven parts is like a replay of the same events, right? Uh, it, because uh, Paul Brown pointed out to me, I have to stop using this football uh, metaphor because we're in basketball time, right? So uh, the reality is it's like a replay in basketball. It's like, did that, did that ball go out? Did it not? I don't know. Let's look at the detail. Let's get close on it. We got, we got to see it from all these angles. Now, the sixth and seventh section of this, right, and, and, the, and what it's covering is the whole of the church age between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So all of Revelation is describing uh, the life that we live, right? It's applicable to all of the church, whether it's in the first century or right now, right? And so it all applies to us. And it's an increasing in intensity. So these last two sections are going to be the most intense sections of the book. They're going to kind of hammer in on a couple of details. So this is the start of that section. Uh, the kings of the world have committed adultery with her, and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns, and blasphemes against, uh, blasphemies against God were written all over it. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand she held a gold goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement. 
Now, this woman, uh, I read this section earlier about uh, chapter 12 because there's so many relationships between these two women, right? Remember, the woman in chapter 12 was driven into the wilderness. God took her into the wilderness to protect her. Where does John go to see this woman? Into the wilderness, right? When you hear common things that you've already heard throughout the book of Revelation, it's designed intentionally to get you to remember something. He's setting up a contrast here. The first woman was a beautiful woman uh, clothed in beauty, right? This woman clothed in beauty, right? They're trying to set up this contrast because throughout this section, right, John has been warning that Babylon will try to masquerade itself as something good, something like the church, that Satan himself is going to try and masquerade, right? We saw that uh, the, the uh, Satan, the dragon, shows up with the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the land. That's three, right? And they sort of imitate the Trinity. They're trying to imitate the Trinity, and they do so in this unholy way. And so this section here is, you might think, is mixing some metaphors, which it is, right? If the woman is Babylon, but she's sitting on the beast, and this beast looks exactly like the beast that was in Revelation 13, the one that came out of the sea, didn't we say that that one was Babylon? Yeah, we did. It's mixing metaphors. That's just how apocalyptic literature works, right? Which is why you cannot view it so, you cannot view it literally, because it's like, wait, Babylon's sitting on Babylon? That doesn't make sense, right? Well, John is not trying to, to give you a booklet that explains, well, this thing means this, and this thing means this. and all the, No, it's apocalyptic literature. You're supposed to just feel and experience this. He's trying to describe it to you as he saw it in a vision, meaning it's figurative. So there's some mixing of the metaphors here. But uh, the angel comes to John and says this. Why, why are you so amazed? The angel asked. I will tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beasts with seven heads and ten horns on which she sits. The beast you saw was once alive but isn't now. And yet he will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. And the people who belong to this world, whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made, will be amazed at the, the reappearance of this beast who had died. Why are you amazed? Right? Remember what John said at the end of this. He said, I stared at her in complete amazement. And then the angel comes to him and says, why are you amazed? Now this word amazed shows up in other places in the book of Revelation, but it also shows up in other places in Scripture. This word in the Greek shows up throughout the Gospels in Times in which Jesus does something and people are amazed at what he does. They're amazed at some of the things that Jesus does. Actually, one of the places in which this shows up is when uh, he calms the wind and the waves and the disciples are amazed that he has power over the wind and the waves. John uses this in uh, Revelation 13 as well to talk about those who are amazed at the reappearance of the beast and then they worship him. Now, John doesn't go on to worship this woman, but he is amazed at her. And the angel asks, why are you amazed? And this is sort of a rhetorical question that's an implicit rebuke upon John. Why are you amazed at this woman? Why are you amazed? Well, let's sit with this for a moment. 
It's because she's kind of amazing, right? I mean, look at the description of her. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. She wore purple, which is the sign of royalty, right? It's a color of royalty. She is sitting on a beast with crowns. She rules. She's powerful. She's, she's wearing beautiful jewelry, gems, gold, pearls, wealth. And this clearly is representing some economic wealth because we're going to see it in 18. And when John critiques Babylon even further in chapter 18, we'll see this in a couple of weeks. The merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her. This is speaking of Babylon. For there is no one left to buy their goods. She bought great quantities of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls. Fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth. See, they've taken the metaphorical things that this woman is wearing and actually translated it to actual economic things that were purchased, right? So clearly this is meant to say that there was some economic extravagance for Babylon. Things made of fragrant Thine wood, ivory goods, and objects made of expensive wood, and bronze, iron, and marble. She also bought cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, wagons, and bodies. That is, human slaves. Turns really dark there at the end. But the rest of this section, those are all great things. Why are you amazed? Well, Why are you amazed? Because she looks amazing. There's like a lot of great things about her. Friends, it's really important that we are honest, that it's easy for us to be amazed at Babylon. It's easy for us to be amazed at Babylon. I mean, just look around. Friends, we live in perhaps the wealthiest nation in the wealthiest time in human history. We have more opportunity to purchase and get things and have beautiful homes and clothing and places and all of this stuff than anyone else in human history has had. It's easy for us to be amazed. It's easy for us to be amazed. It's easy for us to look around and say, Babylon actually is pretty comfy, guys. I mean, if I want to compare myself to Babylon, uh, to uh, maybe the church in some of the letters that we read earlier in the book of Revelation, right? Weren't they facing a lot of hardship, right? Wasn't it like, wait a second, hold on because I know that you're in poverty. I know that you're suffering, but hold on. And we look at that and we read that and we think, okay, hold on to Jesus. But we're not experiencing the same things. It's actually really easy for us to say that because our lives are pretty comfortable. If we're honest, my life is really comfortable. And when it's not comfortable, you know what I do? I whine a lot. Just ask my wife. When it's not comfortable, I don't like it. I'm easily amazed at Babylon because it's pretty amazing. Now, how do we we wrestle with this? Obviously, John is saying... Wait, 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 don't be amazed at Babylon, and we'll get to that in a second here. But how do we balance this sort of rebuke from the angel of John with the reality that 
We, you know, we, we walked through this in uh, our Imago Day series, walking through what it means to be made in the image of God, that it is right for us to enjoy the things that God has made and created. And we are actually supposed to create things, right? Didn't we say a few weeks ago that Jeremiah said to the exiles in Babylon, Make, uh, buy houses, plant gardens, live here, like seek the prosperity of here. Now, how do we balance those two things? Well, that is the tricky part, right? How do we balance those two things? How do we know if we've gone from enjoying the good of God's creation to amazement to worship? How do we know when we've gone there? How do we know when we've gone from enjoying God's good creation to worshiping creation? Well, there's a couple of questions that we can ask ourselves to see where we go in that. How do we respond when those things are taken away? How do we respond when those things that we deem as good things of God's creation are taken away? Well, oftentimes I respond in a way that reveals I find more of my life and joy in those things than I do in Jesus. Because when they're taken away, I respond very negatively. I don't like that. Do we find ultimate joy and happiness and life in these things? What is it that you say, if I just had this, my life would be complete? Whatever this is, you've probably slipped into some idolatry of this, whatever it is for you. If I just had this thing, my life would be complete. I would be happy. I would be satisfied. I would have what I need. Well, worship, right, is giving our Selves, our full selves, our time, our energy, our love, our money, and finding our happiness in the thing that we worship. If you look at your life, what you spend time on, what you spend your energy on, what you give yourself to, what you spend your money on, what you find happiness in, what causes you to say, I love this, what is those things? What are those things? Are they Jesus? Or are they part of Babylon? Are we too amazed at Babylon? Now, the question is, why would we do that? Because clearly, John says, like even John, looking at her, right, it said that she was wearing purple and scarlet clothing, beautiful jewelry, but she also has in her hand a goblet full of obscenities and impurities of immorality. Like, that doesn't sound nice. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right? She's got a name on her forehead that's pretty offensive, right? So like we look at her and we're like, well, I don't know about that part. So why would we do that then? Why would we be amazed at her? Well, the reality is, like I said earlier, one of the most basic human things is the need to feel loved, to be loved. We want to be loved. And when we're lacking in that, we will run anywhere and everywhere to find it. And if this thing promises to give it to us, even if we know it's bad for us, we'll go after it. Even if we know, man, that woman looks beautiful and she also has a goblet full of obscenities. That's, that part's bad. That probably isn't good. Wait, she's drunk with the blood of God's people? That's probably not good. But we're going to go anyway because guess what? She will satisfy this longing that I have. Even though we know she won't, we go anyway. Because we're amazed at what Babylon looks like. But the reality is, 
as we've already said, as we've said in other places, right? The beast is already really dead, right? What did John say about her, right? Uh, the angel, right? The beast you saw was once alive, but isn't now. He isn't. He has no power. Babylon's already destroyed. It's already lost. Jesus has already conquered. It's already dead. But you know what? It's hard for us because we look around and say, yeah, but the people in Babylon don't think that Babylon's dead. Like, do you not see that they look like they're having a better time than we are? Right? Do you not feel that sometimes where you're like, wait a second. If I were to really like look at this, I mean, the way that John describes this, it looks like these people are not going to have a good experience here, but they look like they're having a better experience than we are. This is something that the psalmist describes exactly this situation in Psalm 73. I'm going to read this whole psalm to us because I think it describes exactly this tension that we feel. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I was almost God, for I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. Right? We look at Babylon, and we're like, wait a second. Why does she get gold, and the church has to hide in the wilderness with the dragon hating her? God, that doesn't seem right. Isn't she wicked? Isn't Babylon wicked? They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have trouble like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people, enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Right? This ought to be the way in which the church, this is probably the way the church is experiencing this vision that John has written to them. Right? Wait, the church is this woman in Revelation 12 who's in the wilderness, who's facing turmoil, who has this dragon after her, hating her. And yet this woman sits on a dragon. She sits on a beast with seven heads, right, and crowns. She's clothed beautifully. Why does she get all that? Why does she get all that? Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. This is exactly what the book of Revelation is designed to make us do. 
to see the wicked will not prosper in the end. And even when we allow our hearts to get bitter, right, which is totally the description of, of everything that it means to be amazed at Babylon, right? You allow your heart to get bitter because you're like, Babylon looks amazing and they're doing wicked things and still God blesses them with things and I'm bitter at them because I actually want what they have, but I know it's wrong and I don't want what they have because I know it's wrong, right? That tension, right? And I just fall into this bitterness in my heart where I'm angry at the desire that I have to want Babylon and also angry that God gives Babylon what she wants. And yet, what does the psalmist say? Even in the midst of that bitterness, yet I still belong to you. Yet I still belong to you. Remember that. We're going to come back to that. Yet I still belong to you. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Now, you may have heard this quoted many, many times, but the context of it is saying, I'm bitter and hate Babylon. Right? Remember, usually the most powerful statements of spiritual growth come from the darkest moments of recognizing your own heart, of recognizing where you're at actually and being honest. Those who desert him will perish for you, destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. This, is, this, this psalm describes the feeling that the church should feel in the midst of this section. Now, let's go on to, to look at what happens the rest of this section here. I'm going to read the rest of 17 here. This calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. Now, a lot of people, when they see this seven and seven hills, they think immediately of Rome, which was surrounded by seven hills, and they're like, clearly, sorry, clearly this angel is referring to Rome. Well, I think maybe that could be in the background, but what have we known of the number seven throughout the book of Revelation? Seven is a figurative number for completion or perfection, fullness. Well, and hills or mountains is the reality of kingdoms, right? This is true throughout the Old Testament, that kingdoms are represented by mountains or hills. And so this could simply be the, the fullness of the kingdoms in which she rules, right? She is really representative of all the kingdoms opposed to God, right? They also represent seven kings. And, and this is why I think it's more figurative than literal to Rome. Now, certainly the church in the first century would think Rome in this because that's the empire surrounding them. But why I think it's more figurative than that is they also represent seven kings. Five kings have already fallen. The sixth now reigns, and the seventh is yet to come, but his reign will be brief. No matter how you slice this, it's really hard to get like specific historical people to line up in this way. Like, does the king that's represented here, is it this king? Is it this king? Like, John's just speaking figuratively. We, we don't have to find out how many kings specifically are going to line up. And usually when you do, five years after you've made the prediction, you look like a fool because you were wrong, right? Because Jesus made it pretty clear no one knows the hour in which I'm coming, 
right? So don't try. Remember, we've said this a ton, right? But the book of Revelation is not designed for you to pick up your newspaper and like, well, not a physical newspaper because nobody reads a physical newspaper anymore, but scroll through your feed, right? And look and see like, oh, I think that's Revelation 17 right there. Right? Like, that's not what the book of Revelation is designed to do. It's designed to make you pick up your Bible and come closer to Jesus and love your neighbor. That's what it's designed to do, right? And so, let's not press all of these details. The point is, she rules, Babylon rules, this present age. That's the point, right? It's a figurative way of looking at this. The scarlet beast that was but is no longer is the eighth king. He is like the other seven, and he too is headed for destruction. The ten horns of the beast are are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. Again, just figurative language about the reality that the beast is ruling over governments in this present age. Any government that does not have King Jesus on the throne is Babylon, right? That's, That's the point. They will all agree to give him their power and authority. Together they will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them because he is Lord of all lords and King of all kings, and his, call, his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. Again, this refers to just a, a, a little bit more of a detail on this battle that we talked about last time, right? The Battle of Armageddon, in which, again, figuratively seen, right? This is why we can't take it chronologically, right? Because we've already wiped out the world like six times, right? So like we can't take it chronologically because there's no one left to gather because of the river of blood and all these things, right? Like it's, it's, it's just another way of looking at it from a different slice that they are going to gather together against the lamb. Then the angel said to me, the waters where the prostitute is ruling represent masses of people of every nation and language. The scarlet beast and his ten horns all hate the prostitute. They will strip her naked, eat her flesh, and burn her remains with fire. For God has put a plan into their minds, a plan that will carry out his purposes. They will agree to give their authority to the scarlet beast, and so the words of God will be fulfilled. And this woman you saw in your vision represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. Here's the thing about Babylon, right? It says that she rules over these waters, which are people, masses of people. It's interesting the way in which John describes the vision that he sees, right? Initially, this woman looks amazing. But all you got to do is dig a little deeper to find out she's riding on masses of people. And she's on this beast who hates her. The beast hates her? Wait, isn't the beast on her side? And yet the beast hates her? She rules over people. She oppresses people. Babylon rules over people and oppresses people. And the beast hates Babylon. See, Babylon is amazing, but hated. No matter what Satan lies about, no matter how he lies and talks about it, he hates Babylon, he hates people, he hates you. It's just what he is. He's angry and he hates. 
This is really important because if you look and see the way Babylon is treated by the beast that she gives authority to, it's a contrast to the way the church is treated by the one she gives authority to. Babylon is hated. If you're a Christian here this morning, you need to think about this. Does the world really love you? Or is it using you? Is our culture trying to get rich off of your suffering, your loneliness, your addiction, your struggle, your amazement with the things of this world? That's Satan's strategy. Use and abuse. Hate and destroy. And cause us to hate and destroy each other. It's his strategy. Babylon looks amazing, but she is hated. She will not last. She will not last. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not trusting in Jesus and him alone for salvation, you're figuring this thing out, we're glad you're here and we're glad you're walking through this crazy book with us. Sorry, it's real weird. <laughs> it's okay. We'll, we'll talk it through. And we want to know your story. We want to know who you are and your doubts and, and your questions and any of those things. But I want to ask you, does the world around you really love you? Do the things that you give yourself to really respond in love to you? Or do they just seek to take from you? No matter what we give ourselves to in this world, does it ever respond in saying, I love you. You're my beloved. I'm actually going to sacrifice for you. When has the world sacrificed for you? When has Babylon said, in the interest of you individual person, I will sacrifice me and my gains so that you can prosper and be well? So that you can be mentally well. So that you can be spiritually well, socially well, physically well. All of the things. I want you to thrive. When has the world done that? It doesn't. But what about the church? What about the church? What about the woman in Revelation 12? She's lowly. She's in the wilderness. She's suffering. What does Babylon have? Uh, what is Babylon drunk with? The blood of God's people. She is lowly. She is suffering. She is oppressed by Babylon. She's not amazing. She's nothing special to look at. But around the world today, right now, what is the most important thing that is happening in the world today? The worship of King Jesus. It's not amazing. It doesn't look amazing. No one notices it. If you were to walk around this city, there are churches gathered together worshiping King Jesus this morning. And if you walk around tomorrow, it'll look the exact same. And you're like, wait a second, nothing special happened here. Slowly. The glory of what we're participating in is hidden currently. Slowly. It's hidden. It's ordinary stuff. I'm just standing up here reading these words to you and explaining them to you. And we are trusting that God's Holy Spirit is here to transform you so that you actually walk out of here a different person. Transformed by the good news of the gospel. We're going to partake in communion together. 
We actually believe that this will transform you. You will be more and more like Jesus. You will get grace from us eating a meal together. We are loving one another. We are giving of ourselves for each other. It's why we, part of the reason in which we do our mercy fund giving and our general tithes and offering and these things is we give of ourselves because we love one another. Because we're in this thing together. But that's pretty lowly. It's not amazing. But what is it? It's defeating Satan. As chapter 12 said, and they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. It's lowly. But it's the strategy to defeat Satan. By the testimony, right? Not by their power, not by their swords, not by their strategies, not by any of those things, by their testimony about Jesus and their willingness not to kill, but to die, but to suffer. We may be lowly, friends, but we are loved. Together they will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them because He is Lord of all lords and King of all kings, and His called and chosen and faithful ones will be with will be with him. Jesus, the Lord of all lords, the King of all kings, the one who is actually in charge, who rules over everything, who is sovereign even over the beasts hating of the, of the woman, of Babylon, right? For his good purposes. The one who rules all things does not sit on top of people like Babylon, does not hate his people like Babylon or the beast, they are with him. They are with him. Friends, we may be lowly as the church, but we are with Jesus. We are loved. What is it that transformed the psalmist in Psalm 73? Knowing that he was loved by God. Even in the bitterness of my heart, I still belong to you. I still belong to you. We're not under him. We're not crushed by him. We are with him. Don't be seduced by the amazing Babylon. Don't marvel at her. Because Satan hates her. Satan hates everyone within her. Satan hates everyone, and he's consumed by hate and anger. But we, the church, are loved by Jesus. We are loved by the true ruler of all. Not the fake one who sits on a beast with fake crowns who's really dead. I mean, when you really think about it, right, this depiction that John says is ridiculous, it's like, yeah, she may have gold on, but she's got a real offensive name on her forehead and she sits on a beast that is actually dead, but she's still sitting on it, though it's alive? Friends, when we strip away the, the, the things that this world covers itself in, we can see its actuality. It's what John is getting you to see. 
its end is destruction. Babylon loses. It doesn't win. But Jesus does. And not only did Jesus already conquer Satan, he said, I conquered him by letting him conquer me for you. So that I wouldn't just conquer him, but I would conquer him with you. So that I could bring you, even in your stubbornness, even in your wanting to be in Babylon, even in your amazement of her, I still love you and died to pay for your sins so that you could be with me. So no matter what you are experiencing today, church, we need to be transformed by the reality that we are loved by God. And when we know that we are truly loved, we don't have to go chasing it in the world. We can receive it from Jesus and then be witnesses in the world to the goodness of Jesus. Using the things of this world that God has created that are good to honor him because we're not trying to take love from it. We're able to give love because we've been loved. This is the point of the book of Revelation and the point of this section for us is to recognize our lowliness but being loved by Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now and we declare that we need you. We are so easily amazed by the world around us. We're so easily enthralled by the things of this world. So Lord, would you showcase to us the reality? Would you show us the reality, the way in which we need to be transformed? And would you show to us your love. Jesus, I pray now that you would expose in our hearts and help us to see with clear, clear eyes, with utter clarity, the way in which the world hates us. And with utter clarity, the way in which you love us. That you would just showcase to us, specifically to each person here, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would showcase to their hearts that you adore them. You suffered for them, that you rose from the dead for them, and that you sing over them. Jesus says, we respond in song to you. Would we hear your song over us and your love for us? Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.